0: Welcome to episode 23 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse.
0: Now, today we're going to focus on two big issues. Is the BBC our greatest cultural institution and worth fighting to save? And why are we so woefully ignorant about our imperial history? Later on in this podcast, then, we'll be talking to The Times columnist Satnam Sanghera about why we'll never understand ourselves if we don't know the truth about our empire. And he'll be here to tell us about his new book, Empireland. Land. But first, the BBC. Buckle your seatbelts, because today we're in for some robust, controversial talk. But well, at least that's what Charlotte thinks it is. It's for me it's <laughs> meat and drink. The renowned social commentator Peter York has been a household name since 1982, long before I was born when he published with Anne Barr the official Sloan Rangers handbook. He was then a writer at Harper's Bazaar, but most of our listeners will know that the Sloan Rangers handbook became an era-defining runaway hit with Princess Diana as the super Sloan. But though we'd love to talk to him about Sloan Rangers, we're resisting that, partly because it was about 40 years ago, but also because he's turned his laser-sharp critical gaze on the enemies of our biggest cultural export, the BBC, BBC. His new book, which is co-authored with Professor Patrick Barwise of the London Business School, is called The War Against the BBC, just in case you didn't know what it was about. It's an impassioned defence of the institution and a vigorous attack on its opponents. Just so you get a flavour, the subtitle alone is how an unprecedented combination of hostile forces is destroying Britain's greatest cultural institution and why you should care. So, listeners, even if you don't like the BBC... Don't go away. Stay and listen to what Peter has to say because it's riveting stuff. And without further ado, good morning, Peter.
1: Good morning. Good morning, Peter. And thank you for coming on. I'm dying to hear what you have to say. Now, you describe the new director general, Tim Davis, as a whip thin, marathon tough, and modern marketing man. <laughs> So, um, your prose alone sets the stage for a very serious gloves off fight. You're certainly not afraid to take on the big guns. So, let's get started. It's a huge subject to cram in here, but give us the headlines. Who's out to destroy the BBC? And why should we we be fighting so hard to save it?
2: Who's fighting to destroy the BBC? Here's a list of the guilty men and women. (laughs) It's mainly men, but there are a fair few women in there as well. Let's start at the beginning. A very large chunk of the Tory party has the wrong idea about the BBC, particularly that bit of the Conservative Party which was most in love with Donald Trump and is most rapidly tr- retreating from it- its former love protestations. So the Prime Minister, who thought that Trump should get the Nobel Prize, now retreating from that, has talked about whacking the BBC. The Prime Minister's spirit Guide, the Red Indian who fortified him and took him along planning and strategy, because he doesn't do that, namely Dominic Cummins, who I don't think has gone really, set out a plan to destroy the BBC in 2004. And it was very well thought through, it was very modern, and it incorporate, incorporated the latest American propaganda technique. So you started by discrediting the organisation, by challenging it constantly, by having lots of stuff online saying BBC is biased, BBC lies, all this stuff. And then you introduced the mechanism of American fragmentation and right-wing broadcasting. You got a Fox News for Britain. And then you got a chain of ultra-right-wing, barmy, shock jocks on radio stations all around the country. In America, these are very familiar types. They're called things like Rush Limbaugh or Graham Beck. We follow America. We are The people who want to destroy the BBC want to defragment de- the broadcasting and media scene and create an American-like media ecology. Just the right time, don't you think? because that media ecology has helped destroy America. We can see the results of that in the hideous divisions in America, where people actually talk about civil war. So, part one is a very hostile Conservative government, one that has already reduced the BBC's real inflation-adjusted funding by 30%, from 2010 to 2020. Nobody talks about that. Is there anyone else
0: (laughs) out to get the BBC
2: or or is it just the Tories? No, it's more than just the Tories. There are commercial interests. There's a remarkable overlap between... Are people who are ideologically opposed to public service broadcasting, or, for that matter, public service anything. You will find that the people who are opposed to public service broadcasting, like the Institute of Economic Affairs, are also opposed to the NHS and have been attacking it historically forever. I'm wondering how
0: many libel writs we're going to get at the end of this podcast. But just briefly, why should we... It's, what, it's all in the book. What... what uh, why should we care about the BBC? What's your defence well, of the BBC? My defence of the BBC... Sort of barbarians. Um,
2: one, social cohesion. We've needed that. Unfake news. We've needed that. Education. We've needed that, and we're getting that. And the extraordinary returns to, uh, to investment that the BBC gives in terms of our economy. Every pound put in the, the BBC yields £2 back and more. The BBC has been central to our homemade creative industries. When people talk about Netflix as a comparison with the BBC, it's totally absurd. The BBC, for want of... Repetition is the British Broadcasting Corporation and it has public purposes and a mission for the nation. It isn't a profit maximising Silicon Valley corporation uh, living on enormous
0: debt. So uh, let me just uh, jump in with my defence of the Tory party briefly. Um, (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) I I, I was actually the minister who (laughs) cut the BBC. And I think it's important to put it in context. This is now sounding like a sort of news night interview. But first of all, I mean, the BBC themselves in 2010 offered a licence fee freeze, which we grabbed because it was, as one remembers, the age of austerity. But the the big controversy, where I absolutely agree with Peter, although I was a, unfortunately a fellow traveller, was um, where we handed over the free licence fee to the BBC and told them that they had to pay for it, the free over 65s uh, over 75s licence fee. Uh, And that was a terrible thing to have done, but actually it wasn't actually driven by hostility to the BBC. It was driven by a chancellor, George Osborne, who thought he could pick a pocket of an institution in order to meet his welfare cut targets. I suppose what I would say on a more broader term is, you know I love the BBC and I love its output, but is there anything at all, Peter, in in the modern world, would you invent the BBC? I mean, you have all this plethora of choice. You have Netflix, you have Disney Plus, you have all sorts of things. Is is there still a role for the BBC? There's
2: a fantastic role for the BBC. I think Netflix is in many ways marvellous, though I don't watch it very much. It's the modern-day equivalent of going to Blockbuster. But I accept that it gives joy to many people. The real business model of those California streamers is completely different. Their mission is completely different. They cannot and will not be broadcasters who do things that are live, fresh, local, national.
1: Can I just jump in here Peter and just just say one of the things I, you know, that you wrote that that I like very much was when you were saying how much reassurance the BBC gives it, especially to older people actually who are very dependent on the radio. You know that they time their days by those absolute sort of stalwart things. I'm not just talking about the Archers now but you know all those consumer programs and you know, whether it's you and yours or or money box or whatever it is, you know, we might scoff at them, but actually they are they serve a purpose, as does the World Service and all of those other things that
2: a Netflix couldn't possibly offer. When people talk about the BBC being wildly woke and groovy and annoyingly so, I think Gardner's Question Time, I think Songs of Praise. I think of Ed Sturton early on a Sunday morning and all that stuff. And I think I, I can't reconcile those two pictures of the BBC. The BBC does have things for all ages a person. It's often people say, oh, you're, not, uh, you're ignoring all the old people who loved you um, and putting on woke, woke nonsense. It isn't. And then they say, oh, you're ignoring the young people who are turning in droves to Netflix. So they can't win. To our great delight, we took apart a Daily Mail article, big Daily Mail article, headed how the BBC only spends half of its revenue actually creating programmes. And it was sheer invention. The BBC, if, if you actually crank in all the things that are necessary, the BBC spends nearly 93% either making programmes, employing the people who make them, and transmitting them. They're very, very
0: efficient. Next year is the 40th anniversary of the Sloan Ranger handbook. And on a scale of 1 to 10, how annoying is it to be constantly asked about the Sloan Ranger's handbook 40 years after you wrote it?
2: It's a look. (laughs) It's, <laughs> anybody, anybody who's had a major bestseller at any point in their lives, and this was the biggest-selling trade book of the 1980s, the Sunday Times said so, and we know they are always right, <laughs> has to be eternally grateful. And it wasn't that bad as these things go. The observations were right.
1: Peter, thank you. And I, I'm honestly, the book is just... It's so fierce and marvellous and I you know there is just no mincing of words anywhere in it
2: it's also evidence-based which we owe to prof patrick barwise of london business school who is a genius about being
0: evidence-based yes yes you're very good at sharing the credit peter it's not something I ever do but you're very
3: good
0: (laughs) Brilliant. brilliant brilliant thank you thank you The journalist Satnam Sanghera was for a long time known as a brilliant, funny and somewhat precocious kid from Wolverhampton with a love of cars. But actually, Satnam is not only very funny, but he's formidably talented and he has quickly risen to be a very serious star journalist, both at the Financial Times and now at the Times. Yes, and many of you will already know him from his book, Boy With
1: a Topknot, a story of love secrets and lies. His memoir of growing up in a big Sikh family and the challenges of trying to become a bit more British was turned into a BBC Two drama starring Sasha Dawan, who was so moved by Satnam's complicated but warm relationship with his mother that he's talked publicly about breaking down during rehearsals.
0: Wait till Sasha finds out about my relationship with my mother. Anyway, (laughs) we digress. Because a couple of weekends ago, Satnam was on the Times Magazine's front cover because he's got a great new book out, Empire Land How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain. It's a brilliant study of multiculturalism. And very roughly, his thesis is that if we only learnt about our history and empire properly, we'd understand better where we are and who we are as a nation today. That's putting it extremely simply. But luckily, we have Satnam with us today to tell us all about
3: it. Good morning, Satnam. Morning, Ed. That's actually a very good summary. Oh, thank you. Charlotte. Sure <laughs> yeah. I have read the book there.
1: Good morning, Satnam. And it's an absolute delight to be reconnecting with you because we met about five years ago in, of all places, Montenegro on a very glamorous press trip for Jaguar. It seems a very long way away now from lockdown Britain. Anyway, I digress because we're here to talk about Empire land. Now one of the things that drew me in straight away was your appraisal of the way history is taught in British schools. When I was at school we learnt about the Tudors and the 30 year war and that was about that and absolutely nothing seems to have changed for either of my daughters. It still all seems to be Henry VIII and very little else. I was certainly never taught anything about empire and they're not learning about it either. So just how ignorant are we as a nation about our imperial history?
3: Well I guess the ignorance is quite shocking and common I mean one of the things I found out is that when Tony Blair handed Hong Kong back to the Chinese he didn't actually know about the history about the opium wars and so on and I remember meeting a few months ago a columnist with another newspaper who did history at Oxford and he he learned nothing about colonialism until he got to the age of 40 so it's quite common this but my thesis in the book is basically that We are dysfunctional in the way we talk about British Empire. It's the biggest thing that happened to us. Arguably, it's the biggest thing that happened to the world. And yet we're stuck in this way of saying either we need to be proud of it or ashamed of it, which is historically illiterate. I mean, it's 500 years of history. You can't give it a five-star review like it's a kettle of Amazon, you know? We've got to talk about it in a more intelligent way. And my argument is it makes much more sense to talk about the legacies because the legacies are things we live with today. And those are things that you can actually say are either positive or negative. I would say one of the positive things is our multiculturalism. The reason I am here as a brown person talking to you guys is that some British people invaded India in the 17th century, right? But there's other legacies. There's a lot of our language comes from empire, our food, our internationalism. I think we have a certain tradition of anti-racism, which goes back to the fact that we abolish slavery. But on the negative side, we've got our legacy of racism, and I would say our particular brand of racism in Britain goes back to empire. We have the politics of exceptionalism, which you can see in Brexit and also in the way we handled handling the coronavirus crisis with this obsession with being world-beating. And then you have our museums, which were basically built in parallel with empire and which we view in quite a dysfunctional way.
1: I was very interested in what you were saying about the politics of exceptionalism. What, what's your take on that, Ed? My
3: take
0: on the politics of exceptionalism, I mean, I think that's why this book is so uh, important because I think that, as kind of I think Satnan was indicating, that there's a tendency when you think about our history of empire to kind of be forced to kind of fall down on one side or the other. You've got to either say the British Empire was a fantastic thing for the world, we're absolutely brilliant and, uh, you know, let's go forth. Uh, or you say, "Oh, this is a terrible burden of shame on Britain," and actually, the debate is uh, much more nuanced, which I think Satnam brings out in in his book. I mean, the, the, what I loved about the book is it, it's obviously incredibly accessible. It's relatively short. I know that sounds facetious, but I've about it. it's <laughs> and then we pages, love short. <laughs> and then you get fifty pages of bibliography. I mean, the amount of reading you did before you distilled your thoughts, Satnam, is phenomenal.
3: Yeah, it's about four years of reading, and actually, I'm not someone who. Really reads history books. I mean, I've written a novel and a memoir. I read novels and history books. For me, don't focus on the things I care about, like character, people's love lives, you know. And every single book on empire is at least you know eight hundred pages long. So, (laughs) I I guess it's it's not a history book. It's more a book about history, and it's a way. I guess it's it's for people like me who wouldn't normally pick up a book about history. um, About one of the most controversial aspects of history at the moment, which is empire.
0: For me, you know, obviously history is a living thing and I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, people saying that you use what is happening in the present to reinterpret the past. And I think that's what Empire Land does. And I think to go back to Charlotte's brilliant summary of your, thesis what comes across is first of all how empire is woven into our language the amount of words that derive from our experience of empire but also as you say I think for you the discovery about how many different people of colour have been part of British history for so many years and you saying in the book you know if I'd known that as a kid it would have given me so much more confidence about my place in Britain.
3: Yeah, and I look back at my children and I just can't believe it. I mean, every year, like every school, we had a, remem- a Remembrance Day and most of our student body was quite racially diverse. But at not any single point did the teacher say, actually, you know what, millions of your ancestors actually fought in both world wars and died for a country that colonised them. And why is that? I mean, why, do we, why can't we accept that we were you know, a racially diverse empire and that's why we have a racially diverse population now?
1: I mean, I I was really interested in in that thing about you as a child. You wrote that you felt heartbroken not to have known all this as you were growing up. Do you think you'd have been a very different person?
3: You know, I'm interested to know what kind of person you think you might have been had you known all this. I guess, uh, you know, when you're a child of immigrants, you see yourself as a kind of between two worlds and slightly alienated at times from both worlds. But I think if I'd known the history of empire, I would have felt like I belonged more to both worlds. But I think having a book like this would have changed my life, but I think it would have changed the lives of all the the white students around me too, who would have seen their nation in in a different way.
0: I mean, the other thing, I mean, there's an element of luck, if I can put it that way, in terms of you publishing it right now, because it's landed flat bang in the middle of this kind of woke war uh, debate. You know, the National Trust is taken to task for daring to point out that many of our country estates were built On the fruits of slavery and uh, there's this feeling that you know we shouldn't take down the statues of slave traders because you know to coin a phrase slave traders didn't know they were doing anything wrong i mean what's your view on what the national trust has done and what uh, and this whole debate about statues
3: you're right i mean when i began writing the book it wasn't uh, a popular subject it's quite esoteric it's just towards the end of when i was finishing it black lives matters happened and suddenly empire became a huge issue. And I feel like empire is in news all the time, partly because of Black Lives Matter and the statues, but also I feel that like young people are very animated about it and have very strong feelings. I mean, they feel the same way about museums that we felt about zoos maybe 20 years ago. Also, the counter view that British empire is great and is seen as extension of nationalism has become very popular too on the right wing. People like Niall Ferguson, Andrew Roberts, Nigel Bigger, but also it's been weaponized by people on the right wing of, of your party, Ed. You <laughs> have realized that actually sowing division around issues such as British Empire is a way to get votes. It's, a, it's become a culture war, you know, because there is a bizarre view in, in Britain that to be proud of British Empire is to, be, is to be proud of Britain. It's not an attitude that really exists in many other countries. I mean, in Germany, you can talk about the Holocaust, right, and still be considered a patriot. In, in Japan, you can talk about kamikaze pilots, and still be considered proud of your nation. But it's only really in Britain where you've got to be proud of 500 years of really complicated history in order to be patriotic.
0: So, I mean, if I made you chairman of the VNA, I mean, you pick out Tristram Hunt in your book, for example, the uh, director of the VNA, would you repatriate a lot of um, objects in the collection?
3: Well, this is the thing, right? What I realised when I, lo- I looked into two two things that happened in empire, the invasion of Tibet and the invasion of Ethiopia. And what you realize at the time is that looting was permitted. um, Looting was routine. And also public museums grew with empire. The East India Company had a museum inside its offices. But most importantly, the looting was condemned at the time. Mm. You know, when Kitchener took Mardi, the Mardi Skull, Queen Victoria was really, she said it was a medieval thing to do. I mean, Gladstone complained about the stuff we had stolen from Ethiopia, which is now at the heart of the VNA's exhibitions. And the other thing you need to remember is that if you started repatriating a few things, which is all I think we should do, it wouldn't mean that we have nothing left in the British Museum. In general, the British Museum has 1% of its collections on display. So if we gave back 3%, it would lead to amazing scholarship. It would lead to a massive improvement in our relationship with countries like India And it would be the right thing to do.
0: I totally agree with you. I've completely changed my view on repatriation. I'm now passionately uh, in favour of it.
3: Wow, God, I've got to to recruit you, the one Tory.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe there are more of us, who knows. But, Salam, you said earlier that you don't like reading history because you're much more interested in people's personal lives and love life and things like that. And I think that's kind of an invitation for me to switch the subject because... I think the most important issue in the last year in the pandemic has been following the relationship you have with your two nieces, who I think have basically moved in with you during the pandemic. Can you give our listeners an update on how the flat share is going?
3: Well, actually, I've written so much about them, they've told me I can't talk about them again. <laughs> uh, it's, it's slightly gone to their heads, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, I live by myself and my two nieces, my my sister's children, They are in the early 20s and they were living in flats around London. So when the pandemic happened, thinking it would be maybe three or four weeks, I invited them to live with me and uh, it quickly became eight or nine months. (laughs) And uh, it's been bizarre and amazing. And they're really massively um, into politics and history in a way that we, I don't think our generation was. Maybe we had it too good. You know, and everything seemed OK. We had centuries politics, but they're very animated and they know a lot about it. And I wish I knew that much at their age.
1: But they're still not being taught, are they, This is This is your issue. I mean, it's incredible that they're still doing the Tudors again and again and again and again at school. It just hasn't moved on at all, has
3: it? Yeah, apparently. I mean, there's a survey in the Guardian recently saying that only one in 10 GCSE students were studying a, a module dedicated to empire. Uh, And there was another survey survey which found that in general, people have 80% of people were taught about the Tudors and less than 8% 8 of people were taught about uh, Britain's colonization of Africa. Yeah. And that's incredible. I mean, why are we like this? I mean, I I come up with various explanations in my book. And I think it's partly because we were never invaded. Have your nieces read your book? (laughs) There's quite a long story around that because my memoir was set at school for them and uh, they refused to do it. They asked to st- study something else. I'm quite glad they did because it was quite an upsetting story, full of quite dark things about their parents. And so, I excuse them. But with this book, I'm making them, uh, I'm making them bloody buy it.
1: Well, I hope so because it's brilliant. And thank you so much for coming and
3: telling us about it. It's all right, now thank you. And I hope, I really hope that people don't think that this book is of one p- political bent. I think it, I want people on the left and right to read it. And I don't think you need to be conservative or Labour or anything to to really understand that we need to be, you know, more thoughtful about our history.
0: No, I mean, I think I totally agree with you. I mean, I've defended, obviously, the National Trust against the attacks that it suffered because it dared to uh, explore the colonial history of its houses. And the point is, it's academic scholarship. It's simply uh, uncovering historical fact, which is then open to interpretation and uh, debate on its implications which we can debate in a perfectly civilized manner and I think that's the whole point about your book that it 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 has something for everyone if, if you want to know the origin of the word juggernaut there's, there's something about that in there if you want to know the history of people of color in the in the uh, in Britain or England as it were it's in there if you want to know about some of the darker aspects of colonial history which we should face up to uh, it's all in there. I think the pro- the only problem I have with the book, the hardback edition has quotes on the front from Jonathan Coe and James O'Brien. So <laughs> what I think is the paperback should have a quote from the Tory Ed Vesey just to show that it's an ecumenical, <laughs> far-reaching,
3: <laughs> engaging book. That's a good quote. You never know, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Satnam. Thanks, Ed and Charlotte.
0: That was all very thought-provoking stuff from both our guests. But just before we go, we thought we'd lower the intellectual heat and quickly chat about what we're watching on TV this week.
1: Yes, yeah, so well, what are you watching, Ed?
0: Oh, thanks a lot. I... I'm watching <laughs> – I think we're watching the same thing. Oh. I am watching It's a Sin. And oh, it's brilliant. I am watching Finding Alice. Oh,
1: OK, now, I don't
0: like finding Alice. Yeah, well, I want to I just uh, talk about this a bit because I am a major fan of Keely Hawes. So am I. One of the reasons I actually love her is that I met her and her husband at a party years ago. And she came up to me and she said, I watch you on The Right Stuff. This was this Channel 5 show that Matthew Wright did. Uh, but she was a fan, so I fell hopelessly in love instantly. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing person you are! But obviously, she was brilliant in things like Line of Duty and the one where she played the Home Secretary. I mean, she's a brilliant actress. But I have to say, the bodyguard. Sympathise yeah. with your opening statement. I I sat watch it with my wife, and I kept saying, uh, "There's no plot. You know that, don't you? And also, you don't really care about the characters that much, because it starts uh, spoiler alert with the husband falling down the stairs and dying." And so you think it's a, going to be a murder mystery. You think it's going to be a thriller. And then it just sort of ambles along. And also, I think you were going to say, putting words into your mouth, that the character Alice, as played by Keely Hawes, is quite irritating.
1: Quite irritating. I Look, I've got a 16-year-old daughter. I know that having a daughter that age, you know, it, it's not that easy always, but she's a really shocking with her daughter <laughs> you know, she's so annoying and you think oh come on you, you know you'd be a bit better than that the daughter really I
0: don't know the name of the actress who plays the daughter but she's fabulous
1: she's I think she's called Isabella Pappas or something like that she's she's really really good and what she puts up with by the end you're just to, I just found I was totally on her side
0: and on the side I, I should also say obviously Joanna Lumley can do no wrong oh. <laughs> she's in it absolutely brilliant Nigel Haver's fantastic uh, Kenneth Cranham, absolutely brilliant. You know, it is one of those things, you know, no harm in watching it. Let's put it that way. Now,
1: just before we both get on to It's a Sin, can I just have a bit of a swank on behalf of this podcast? Uh, everyone suddenly has caught on to Call My Agent, which is now in oh, its serious We were
0: so there. <laughs> I think you, you told me about Call My Agent, didn't you?
1: Yeah, but we were talking about it on this podcast back in the spring. So well, I think listen... we
0: need to tweet that out. I think we need to make the point that we were talking about Call My Agent. But so I'm going to do that.
1: Look, listeners, it is worth listening to us because we do... Yeah, we exactly. Are... Yeah, are we're out there. Where... We're going to
0: tip you off about this programme <laughs> called It's a Sin that nobody's talking about.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I, we might be a little bit late to that party. But but I just... It's so... Russell T Davies really... You, uh... It's I can't
0: brilliant. remember. Yes, I mean I, we are now talking about it. it's a sin clearly. But I have to say it's a sin massive hype. Everyone's talking about it. I sat down two nights ago started watching it on catch up and it's like the Taj Mahal. It's every bit as good as people say. It's just brilliant. It's it's so cleverly well done. It's so emotional. It's about young gay men in in, uh, 1982, 83. AIDS has just started. It brings alive what it was like to live as a gay man in the 80s, the kind of prejudice people had to put up with, the, the amazing hostility from their families. I was going to say it's a bit like Steve McQueen's five movies about racism in Britain in the 70s and 80s. Yes. It brings alive a period of time that you can't, obviously, in 2021, believe actually really existed. But, of course, it did exist. The first character, who's a, who's a, a, a slightly kind of um, side character, he's not one of the main characters, who gets AIDS, is you know, in a hospital room on his own. His food is left at his door because people thought you could catch AIDS rather like you can catch COVID. Uh, it was like a plague. And it. it I kept thinking about Princess Diana, what a remarkable woman she was to have confronted that prejudice. I actually remember
1: that time really vividly because I had very close friends who died from AIDS. And even a few years later, at the end of the 80s and early 90s, I made a couple of documentaries about it and all that prejudice and fear was still very much around. Um, but Russell T. Davis captures it all so, so accurately. And the way I think he draws us in is just superb. First of all, the way he weaves all the characters together and you really care about all of them enormously. Yes, you do. And that's number one. But also it's just the whole sense of exuberance about bursting out of sort of horrible social constraints and being able to be gay. And then bang, you know, they get hit with this terrible illness. I can't recommend it more highly. It's, It's superb.
0: And, in fact, talking about throwbacks to the 80s, I can't remember if I've already mentioned this on a podcast because, obviously, I'm old and my memory is failing, but I weirdly (laughs) got... (laughs) There's this thing on Netflix called Cobra Kai. Oh,
1: you love Cobra Kai. You keep talking about it on this podcast.
0: Well, I've finally seen all three series. And it is, again, it's utter nonsense and very silly, but actually rather brilliant. And, again, it's something that you just kind of dive into. And the other thing I saw was the last series of Spiral, Have I talked about that? Oh, I love Spiral. It's like the French Sweeney, basically.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: But with a female lead and fantastic, just brilliantly done. And and again, you watch it obviously partly for the, just because it's a standard issue, cop drama. But actually, the kind of light it shines on immigration issues and racial issues in Paris, because Paris suffers from well, the people who are in them suffer, these bar these terrible areas of deprivation, uh, ghettos, frankly. And, you know, they've got really serious problems which they're not addressing. And it really, the spiral really throws them into sharp relief.
1: So there we go. That's all our recommendations. And very sadly, that's all we've got time for this week.
0: Don't worry, because we're going to be back next week with lots more stimulating conversation. So please keep listening. And in the meantime, do please sign up to all our newsletters on countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletters. In fact, the February newsletter from Great British Brands is out right now.
1: Yes, and on our website, you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with carolyn talking to big names in interior design. And our new and exciting limited edition series of 10 podcasts for Great British Brands, hosted by Michael Heyman of Changemakers. In the first one, he discovers the extraordinary and moving story of chef and founder of Darjeeling Express, Asma Khan. So that's definitely worth tuning into as well.
0: That sounds absolutely brilliant. It's going to be an inspiring and surprising story. So worth listening to. And do come back and listen to more of Charlotte and Me next week, as we'll be back with a great big British Hollywood director. Wow. So do keep listening and subscribing and commenting as we're growing and it's all thanks to you doing that listening and subscribing so thank you to all our listeners and goodbye from ed goodbye from charlotte bye